You know why I'm so passionate about music to code by? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than 4 bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only 3 bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1343, with guest Daniel Peasons. Recorded Friday, August 19th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Richard is finally back in his office. Are you not, sir? I'm I'm squat. Well, this comes out another week or two later, so who knows? I'm sort of squatting in my office today. Yeah, I've thrown up the real traps baffle, and I've got the H4 doing recording, and I'm working for my laptop, which it's all good, and I love being in here. Yeah, but there's paint still needs to be done. There's a bunch of lights missing. Yeah, it's not the same. Is that real traps baffle new? No, no, I've had that baffle for a long time. It's just, you know, I, I, I want to block the wall reflections with it. I'm still using the Chaotica eyeball as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, lots. I haven't heard it yet. This is the second uh, show of the day. And yeah. uh, I, so I haven't really had a chance to hear your tracks yet, but uh, it should sound better with that eyeball. Uh, yeah, the, the eyeball did the trick when we were up on the landing in a very exposed, you know, hard wall environment. But, uh, you know, now I'm closer in, so the trap makes a difference. So we'll yeah. do our best to get, you know, what, the good news is we're both anal enough about audio recording that we keep fussing with these things till we yep. get them perfect. So yep. uh, when all the baffles and stuff are installed in the office, I expect the office to be almost essentially flat on its own. Yeah. So if we could just take a few minutes, I want to let everybody know that uh, my other podcast, Two Keto Dudes, which is about the ketogenic lifestyle, is really taking off. We just interviewed a guy, Jason Fung who is from Intensive Dietary Management in Toronto. He has had a lot of uh, huge success treating type 2 and type 1 diabetics and obese people with fasting therapies, which seems crazy. But uh, most popular show we've ever done, in one week we had 53,000 downloads. Nice, man. Yeah. So what's going on at Run As Radio? Run As Radio, we, uh, we're... You know, new websites up. We're handing out mugs and uh, and having a good time with it. DevOps is obviously a huge topic on the IT side, where yeah. we're really talking about working closer with developers and getting big into instrumentation, uh, uh, configuration as code. Like in the end, you know, we use that line about make your servers cattle, not pets. Yeah. Well, that turns out to be actually done by IT guys mostly. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know. As an IT guy, like you're kind of protective of your servers. It's a very significant mental shift to, I am never going to upgrade this instance. I put it out there. And then when the new version comes along, we make new instances and shoot the old ones. Yeah. It's almost a different personality type, isn't it? It it is a very different way to think about it. And it's why, I mean, largely it's come from startups where you have that no ops mentality where it's, you Mm -hmm. know, it's just four people working together to try and make a, a product. But as you get to bigger organizations, it's a tougher way to think. And one of the tricky bits is naming strategies. Yeah, sure. You know, because suddenly, you know, names are hard and now you're making a lot of names. Yeah. So they have to be pretty much automated. Yeah, right. Just have a, a random word generator, compound well, word creator. Yeah, they, they end up being some kind of shorthand code for where, you know, where you're likely to run it, what its primary role is, and a number. Yeah. Something like that. Well, this is very cool. I have something that uh, our AppV Next friend Josh Pollard sent in uh, for Better Know Framework. Awesome. 
man what do you got well this is a free tool at codeplex.com it's screen to gif screen s-c-r-e-e-n-t-o-g-i-f dot codeplex.com or of course 1343.pwop.me will get you there too it's just a very simple screen capture tool that creates an animated gif from your screen no kidding that's awesome now the whole GIF versus GIF thing. You know how I avoid that? Mm. I say Jife. <laughs> Jife. Because then you know That's it's wrong funny. and nobody bothers you. Yeah, right. They look so at you screen crossways. To Jife. <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, the reason I say GIF is because the G stands for graphics. So graphics is a hard G. So there you go. But you know what's great about uh, animated GIFs is that they're portable. They're a lot easier to deal with than big videos and stuff. And typically, you're using something like screen to gif for a very simple, isolated section of the screen, maybe just 10 frames, 12 frames, just to show something, you know, here, this is the thing you want to click on, move the mouse, click on it, whatever, and drop it into an email. That's a perfect use of this tool, you know, just showing people how to do little things. Now you don't have to create a video and you don't have to worry about, you know, putting the video online somewhere, uploading it to YouTube, whatever. Making sure so, you have the right format and yeah. the player and all that stuff. If you've got a browser, it supports animated jifes, so you're good. <laughs> you're going to love that, aren't I'm you? I'm poisoned yeah. now. That's it. All right. Screen to jive. There you go. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1309, the one we did with Greg Shackles back yep. in June of this year. We were talking about instrumenting mobile apps. Great conversations uh, in the DevOps space. Actually, this is almost a setup. I hate to do this. <laughs> Actually, I really don't hate to do this. This is brilliant. Uh, and this is from Abdu, who says, uh, Richard mentioned the existence of apps, which are very proactive in error notifications where the user gets a call from support, and when the app they were using encounters an error before they even have a chance to contact support. While this might sound like a cool customer service feature, I wonder if users, especially non-technical ones, will appreciate this feature. The reason is that they might think the company is monitoring them or keeping a close eye on the user's activities. That's some kind of big brother stuff, really. Imagine a user getting a call from support. I see you had an error message pop up on you on application X. How can I help you? The first thought that comes to the user's mind is, how did you know that? Right, that's a little creepy. <laughs> yeah, it's a little creepy. These users might start getting paranoid or suspicious about the company. The company knows too much. It's not that the company knows about the app X, but what else do they know or can know? And this might come down to reassurance and training. Don't implement this type of speedy support feature without letting the customer know about it. Now, as an IT guy, yes, I do monitor all that stuff. I'm mm-hmm. actually required to, right? Mm-hmm. I have HR requirements around sexual harassment. I have uh, various uh, standards around security that I have to maintain. And so it's, yeah, if you're using the company machine inside the company network, Suck it up, buttercup. You're being watched. <laughs> All right. That being said, actually providing a benefit of, hey, you know, we see you're having a problem. Can we help you? Is kind of a useful feature. It's a little better. And if it happens to remind everyone, yeah, you're being monitored while you work. Good. Act accordingly. Mm. This idea that of anonymity and so forth, it's all a lie. And, uh, you'll, and you, better that you find out now while you actually need help as opposed to, and you're going to jail. Yeah. So, Abdu, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media. Because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us a tweet. We stick it between our toes. And now let's welcome back to the show, Daniel Peasons. Having over 15 years of experience in the software industry, Dan has built world-class enterprise applications in the transportation, insurance, and healthcare industries. He was a Microsoft Patterns and Practices champion and is regular advisor to Microsoft on DevOps-related topics. Dan speaks regularly at conferences such as Agile and DevOps Days, but also enjoys the local user groups. After four years in the Agile and DevOps consulting space, Dan recently returned to the product world as VP of product development for TriCast. When he's not geeking out, 
you can find him spending time with his wife and three children, as he should be. Welcome back, Dan. Hello, gentlemen. How's it going? Very good. Is TriCast the, uh, like that portable video broadcaster thing? No, TriCast is uh, an auditor in the pharmaceutical space. Ah. So when you submit prescriptions, we're the ones that make sure that you're actually paying what you should for them. Oh, well, we need guys like you, I suppose. I think I was thinking of TriCaster. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's the thing I was thinking of. All right. Well, anyway. So, uh let's talk about uh let's talk about it, man. Let's talk about feature toggles. We were, we had this conversation before and um, you know, offline and wondered if it would make a good show. Turns out it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It it's interesting cuz if you walk feature toggles all the way back to the beginning, you end up with how did we end up with feature toggles to begin with? And the most obvious one is permission-based toggles. Like we all do it in our applications today. We just basically turn things on and off whether or not the user's authorized to do it. Yeah, programmers and, call them booleans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the if user is authenticated yeah, or right. I stamp the authenticated attribute on my controller and move on from there. Right. Um and and like that's what scares a lot of developers when they first start thinking about feature toggles. It's like, oh my gosh, just this new concept. It's like, no, you've you've really been yeah. doing this since the dawn of time. Right. Um, the it, although if we look at like what developers typically do today for a feature toggle, it's I create a branch in my code, um, I start working on it. When I'm ready to release it, I merge it back into the rest of my code. I pray that everything continues to work and then I deploy it out to production. Yeah. That pray step is really critical, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Pray, merge, yell at the conflict utility for an hour or two, you know, all, all of the above. Yeah. Is there a sacrifice a chicken somewhere in there as well? Exactly. Oh yeah. That's a good one. (laughs) So the, the interesting part is we're, we're getting into this continuous delivery type of space and more and more organizations are going to the the single base trunk development, which is I don't have branches that actually maintain code versions. I want to just deploy one set of code all the time. That includes bug fixes. That includes new features. Um, but the the first obvious implication of that is everything is live every time I click the deploy button. Yeah. Um, which which is fine for a little while. Um, but then you get like that, that first new feature, or if you're doing, you know, scrum based development, something's not done at the end of a sprint and it's like, uh Oh, now what do I do with this? And so either developers are frantically backing out commits or hacking up code to quickly hide things. And, and that's really where the, the first start of a feature toggle kind of comes into play. So when I think of a, a feature toggle and how that could be improved over your, what you said before, branching and Booleans and stuff. I'm thinking a declarative model. Yep. Yeah. So the, the first pass that I've seen a lot of developers take at feature toggles is, you know, if configuration manager dot app settings insert string equals true, then do X. Um, add that menu item, put on that button, something to make that feature visible. Right. And, and that works really well for that one block of code you have to toggle. But most of our applications aren't quite that simple. Hmm. And it's, okay, I have to turn on this link in the UI, but the behavior of the logic has to change on the back end here, and this other button has to get enabled, and this other field has to show up, and they're all in different screens. Yeah. And so now my my code's littered with configuration manager calls and magic strings that i'm i'm hoping all line up yeah it's not necessarily the checking of the boolean that's easy but it's all the stuff that follows it it's right it's your yeah it's your branching well and and the one thing that that i think a lot of people forget very early on is toggles are are another form of technical debt like Mm -hmm. Just because you're putting this in here doesn't mean you're making your application more efficient. It means that you're creating an option for yourself. But if you let them live forever, um, you're incorporating as much technical data as if you were to create six different branches and try to code in all of them at the same time. Right. And it's uh, and you're implying here at some point I'm going to remove all those Boolean tests and this is just going to be a feature. Right. So 
there's a lot of interesting ways to accomplish this. My my preferred one, especially within the confines of an application, is to um, represent a toggle as a class. Um, so basically, it's just an empty class in the application that um, you can decorate with the various frameworks. Um, and the idea is that it, it sits in code, but the advantage is that then you can go play a find all references when I want to go remove it later on. And I have a very binary way of searching for all of the uses of that feature toggle so I can eliminate it effectively. Yeah. So you're trying to encapsulate all these feature toggle related things so that you can remove it trivially. Yeah, you're definitely trying to encapsulate them and actually enumerate them too, so that um, it's very distinct in your application how many toggles you have. Um, Because otherwise, it's really easy to get them kind of buried and littered through the app. And it's like, how many of these do I have? And what do they do? Mm -hmm. So... So that, that's the first one. And then there's a couple of other ways to think about toggles. So that's that's what um, is kind of defined out there as like release toggles. Um, and there's two more categories that kind of look really similar, but um, change more frequently. So there's there's ops toggles um, and those tend to live higher. And it's effectively the the operations kill switch button for mm-hmm. functionality. Right. So I have I have the fun, magical new feature and all of a sudden my operations team's noticing that it's consuming 99% of the memory on all my servers and you know turning it off or waiting for a new deployment isn't going to be fast enough so I need a switch that they can hit immediately to shut that down yeah so some like a circuit breaker but it basically give me a way to as the ops guy to stop bad things from happening right the other way I look at this again putting the ops guy's hat on is we're testing in production. And if your test is crippling me, you need to stop. Right. Absolutely. Or, or even like it's, it's Black Friday and you're a shopping website and you have product recommendations or something like that turned on and it's absolutely killing the performance of your system. You can make the call to say, okay, you know what? People are buying so much stuff anyway that they probably don't need recommendations of additional stuff to buy. I'm going to turn right. that off for the next 24 hours to give myself some horsepower back. Hmm. And this speaks to these dashboards I find we're building more and more often for ops guys to be able to figure or help diagnose when we're in trouble as well as treat it. Like that, your description there of let's shut off the recommendation engine, like that's a, this is not a temporary toggle anymore. I want this on my ops dashboard forever. It's a safety along with, you know, run me a fake transaction is such and such a service up. Like, so that green light, red light ability to see how healthy is the app. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting though, that some of the toggles that are out there are actually starting to apply more to the infrastructure side as well. Hmm. Um, some people have, have pulled some interesting tricks with tools like Chef, um, where you can go and change the configuration of your, your Chef environment. And based on a feature toggle in there, it will all of a sudden start spinning up additional infrastructure or change the way the infrastructure is rebuilt. Um, so like what Richard was saying earlier, you know, you can actually rebuild a brand new server with the toggle on or the toggle off. And if you've got something like Azure, you could do that in the background and then switch the load over to the other server. Yeah. All right. Any other kinds of toggles we need to think about? Yeah, one more. It's uh, called experiment toggles and experiment toggles are basically, I have this brand new thing. I want to try it out for the user. It's done, but I don't want everybody to see it right now. So this is um, pick any application out there where it's like, Hey, we're trying a new thing. Click here to be able to do it. Mm. Um, So you need to do two things. One is you need to know, in the context of the toggle, who the user is. Um, and then you also need to know whether or not they're enrolled into it. Um, so sometimes this is used just to say, I want to roll this out to 10% of my users globally and the system randomly picks who that is. Um, and other times it's, it's basically a, an enrollment. So I'm turning on it on for XYZ client or the user has opted into, to want to participate in this new feature. We did this at Strange Loop where when we were building fancy new ways to make websites go fast, there were certain customers that were willing to experiment with our newest features. Yeah. And so if they were flagged that way, we'd push those essentially beta bits to them and then they were able to to experiment with it on live data. Uh, Gmail does the same. You know, we have this new feature. Would you like to continue using, you know, the old one or or try it? 
you get a no thanks and you get a, a way to let the user decide whether they want to participate or not. Right. Wouldn't you also call this for straight up A-B testing? Like again, like validating different ads for effectiveness? Yeah, it, it is actually a great form of A-B testing. And that's kind of the, the back end side of it is that when you're working with those kind of toggles, you also need a tracking mechanism to actually see how effective um, those different paths actually are. Um, so there's, there's a bunch of different stuff out there to kind of help you do that. But, uh, the, the interesting part is that if you are only doing AB switches and you're not really incorporating any feedback, um, there's very little value in letting users opt into stuff unless you just want to know if something breaks. Yeah. It's called an AB test. If you don't measure it, it's not really a test. Mm. (laughs) Very true. Well, especially when you talk about instability, which is something I ran into where, you know, okay, how do you mark in the crash system, right? Or in the error tracking system, this was the version with the B feature. Right. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is that if, if you aren't kind of tracking a combination of what deployment is it, what features were, was I running at the time and what did I have enabled? Um, this can get to be a very complex analysis when something goes wrong. Right. Yeah. It's got, it, it, suddenly A-B testing is way more complicated than you think when hmm. you start talking about being able to track failures as well as logging success and saying like in the end, in, you know, A-B testing and advertising is like some ads are more effective than others. How more effective was it? Can you track all the way down to for this sale, they saw this ad? Yeah. And, and whether or not they clicked on it and whether or not they actually bought something because of that, all right. that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's not small. These are big features, actually. Although, once you get a good framework in place so that you can continue experimenting with it, it's going to provide you lots of value in theory. Yeah. So, so funny you mentioned frameworks because there actually mm. are a couple of good ones out there. Um, if we start at the really basic level, we've got, um, something like feature switch, um, that basically plugs in as a NuGet package into your environment. And gives you kind of that infrastructure I was talking about originally where I can run and present my toggle as a class. Um, and I have a really simple mechanism where I basically can say feature context is enabled and give it the toggle as a generic. And it gives me a Boolean back and forth and says, oh, OK, that works or, oh, no, go to the old code path. Yeah, those frameworks work really well. There's there's other ones like Ntoggle that exist for um, like WPF and, and WinForm applications if you want to do it on that side. Um, ironically, there's no really good framework that bridges all of them, um, but there's there's a bunch of different NuGet packages that serve different needs in, in those areas. Um, the the thing that, that grinds me about them a little bit is that they're all static. Um, so you're accessing static methods to figure out whether or not something's enabled. And the, the X architect in me basically says, eh, I don't like that because then I really can't test them or I have to do a whole lot of complex setup work to be able to test those later on. Um, so I usually wrap any of those toggling frameworks in an interface that I can then go stick into my controller or somewhere else that, that allows my code to be much more testable in the end. Mm hmm. Once you've got that, you kind of have the foundations because uh, open source projects like Feature Switch allow you to then define, okay, well, how is this toggle turned on and off? Um, you can define your own strategy if you have like a custom database that runs it on the back end. Um, it has built-in ones for app settings. It has built-in ones for taking in like query string parameters that you can put on that turns a feature on and off. Um, so there's a bunch of good kind of primitive ways to to start doing features at that level. If you want to pass that level up and then get to the more complex area, then there's services out there called Launch Darkly is a good example of them. And they're a brand new startup and they've been doing a fantastic job in this area, both providing um, a great API for people to manage feature toggles and see what's on and off um, and also do the more complex things like I want to track um, usage of a feature and I want to, um, turn this on based who the user is and all that other kind of stuff. Neat. The real neat thing is that they're, they're working on integrations for almost every, every framework out there. So, um, even if you're developing in, uh, iOS or Android or, um, Java or Ruby, um, they have basically SDKs that work with it because fundamentally they're just calling a REST API to, to turn things on and off. Mm. 
And you do need different frameworks depending on your dev environment. So different building a, a desktop client versus a web client. Yeah, you could you can use one client for it, like the something like LaunchDarkly could probably work across it. Um, the more challenging things is how do you get it down to the view? Um, most of the time, what I recommend to people when they're building things is um, just represent on off things in your, in your view model appropriately. So if you're using an MVP model or an MVVM model, um, just pass the Boolean through the controller and then put all the on off logic inside of the controller or the presenter. Right. Um, but there are a lot of people that, that kind of want that easy way of, oh, I just want to embed this right into my XAML, um, mm-hmm. and then bind visible stuff straight to the toggle. And that works really well. Uh, if, if you want to build an application like that, my, again, it kind of goes back to how testable do you want it to be and, and where do you really want to be testing that logic? Yeah, testing's got to be the hard bit here now because you kind of want to test the A and the B, the feature on, the feature off, like, bleh. Mm. Yeah, it's it's pretty difficult for that. Um, unit testing is is easier because if you front your whole toggle stuff with an interface, you can basically then in the unit test mock out both the on and the off state and test, test all that logic pretty easily. Um, you're just writing more unit tests which and, may not be a bad thing in the end. Um, and to be clear, we're not talking about changing the build per se. We're talking about uh, it's all one build. It's just what shows and what doesn't show. Right. Yeah, it's, it's all one build. We're not changing anything about the build itself where literally the on state and the off state is embedded in the same build. There's just some configuration that tells it what to do when it's deployed. Nice. Or Or even sometimes more dynamically based on who the user is when a call is made to the server type of thing. Um, and that's where uh, there's some interesting decisions that also have to be made when you work on features like that as well, because um, I like to remind people that toggles do things. Yeah. And because, <laughs> and and it's funny because people always kind of look at me funny, like, yeah, so. Duh. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm like, but but remember for your ops team that if your toggle has something big behind it, that changing its behavior or turning it on and off will have some form of impact on your system. Um, the, the great one is I had a client that decided to put Azure Machine Learning behind a bunch of their stuff and didn't think about needing to cache things or, or build it and basically was just making calls straight out to machine learning and back and all of a sudden had a burst of traffic on their system and Whoa. it just took down machine learning altogether. Like right. completely Azure whipped up DDoS warnings and basically just blocked all their traffic. And so suddenly they went from, oh my gosh, there's all this traffic to, oh, nothing works. And <laughs> now there's no traffic. Good. <laughs> and and it was unfortunately it was a dynamic toggle so they they built their toggles in as part of their database so that um they didn't necessarily have to do a deployment or anything or at least put any sort of marker in the system that a toggle's going on so all of a sudden their ops team was like what happened this was working fine 10 minutes ago right. and it clearly was not working fine anymore so I usually recommend that for big features, you either make it part of your deployment mechanism so that you can also put like a ping into like new relic or app insights to say, Hey, a new deployment has gone out or a new toggle has been changed. Mm -hmm. Um, Or at least build that, that notification into your toggling code so that if you have a, if you are storing it separate from doing a deployment, that at least something is going into the monitoring tool saying, Hey, I just turned on this feature. Yeah. I guess you could kind of bury it in a version number or something, but more explicit is better, especially when you got a lot of toggles. Yeah. And and the other interesting risk is that there's there's always the the funny interaction between toggles. So if you actually are starting to run multiple experiments or have kill switches and other things, um, people inevitably start nesting toggles inside of other toggles and don't necessarily no. realize it. Yikes. <laughs> so, it's it's always like having that light switch in your house where you turn it on and off and no matter what you do, it doesn't work. And then you go somewhere else in your house and you turn the light switch on and then it always works. So, <laughs> Or better yet, the light switch that didn't work yesterday suddenly works today. Exactly. How does that happen? I like when, you, so, when the phone rings and it's a guy in Germany saying, stop playing with that switch, you're bugging me. 
Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Uh, It must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to toggle this show into funny mode. (laughs) Wait a minute. The switch worked yesterday. Oh, Um, nice. Yeah. I put in a a sub toggle on it that says really funny. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Victor Saltis. Congratulations, Victor. Congratulations, Victor. Golf clock for you, sir. Victor with a K. Victor. So, Victor just won the D Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at Developer Express. And if you don't know what we just did here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And now, Daniel, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? So... Mine's actually kind of an interesting one this time. I'm a, I'm a type one diabetic. Um, and I'm part of a user group of people that's about 150 people globally today that's running something called open APS. And basically it's an irritation to the FDA that, um, takes all the mechanical devices that are attached to us to keep our blood sugar in check yeah. and automates it and closes it up and turns it into AI. <laughs> um, Wow. So we're, we're kind of behind the scenes, um, doing, doing a bunch of research and development work because most of the manufacturers don't want to give us the actual communication specs for this. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's nothing against them. It's they're, they're protecting liability and things like that. So and we understand. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the, the interesting part is the first commercial version of this system actually won't be out for another two to three years with FDA trials. Um, so what, what I would actually put the money towards is either, um, the hardware, cause there's a lot of people doing a lot of soldering. So I'd love to put the money towards a manufacturer to help build us a printed circuit board that has at least all the hardware on one platform. So yeah. there's less DIY wiring to do. Yeah. Um, or actually put it towards the development time to do more R and D because a lot of the people doing this are doing this in their spare time. And, um, it's a lot of nights and weekends for people. So being able to fund somebody's life for a couple of weeks to, to be able to do this would be great. Yeah, that's great. Wow. What a noble cause. And, and APS stands for artificial pancreas system. Yep. So no kidding. OpenAPS.org is is the website if anyone's interested. Absolutely. Wow, that's awesome. Cool project, man. Very cool. Yeah. Which actually, we use a lot of feature toggles in there, too, <laughs> now that I think about it. <laughs> feature toggle, kill me, don't kill me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because as we add additional functionality to this, we have to figure out kind of how to wire it into the system. And the the nice part is that the whole flow is basically kind of a set of of commands that are all kind of piped together um so it uses a lot of like bash scripting and piping to kind of build the whole process chain um which allows us to basically then toggle out pieces by changing individual commands or adding additional switches to things so that as we want to try new stuff we just have basically have to replace those parts of the system and then i can try it oh does it work this way and eh, not as well okay i'm going to go back to what i had before yeah. Nice. Good. Yeah, it, ma- it makes a lot of sense in that model. Yep. Should we talk about some of the other libraries that are out there? I mean, obviously, uh, uh, Jason Roberts' uh, feature toggle, I mean, that's sort of the center of the universe in .NET. And it's actually come up on past shows as well. And you mentioned uh, Launch Darkly. Are there others? Yeah. Um, feature Switch is the one that, that I like to do. Um, 
I forget the author's name at the moment, but I, I have his, his link in the show notes. Um, and that's the one that I find works the best with um, web applications. One, because it has a nice little admin console if you want to keep everything self-contained. Um, and the other part is it does a nice job um, extracting a lot of his strategies out to the various IOC containers that are out there. So as we move to the .NET Core space and and we have .NET Core's own IOC, this probably won't be as big of a deal. Um, right. But at least, you know, in today's space where it's bring your own IOC container, um, it it's good to kind of have something that can plug into to more than one of them because a lot of the other frameworks only plug into a specific um, IOC container out there. Right. Um, there, there's a bunch of other good ones. The The challenge I've run into, because I found all these exhaustive lists um, doing research on this a couple of times, is um, a lot of these toggling frameworks are like flash in the pan setups. Like nobody's ever built something that they actually kind of want to continue to maintain or, or build a nice core that other people can extend. Um, a lot of them are like, oh, I built this framework. And then it's like, hasn't been maintained since 2014. Right. So... It solves a particular problem for a particular project they were doing at the time, and then they would sort of walk away. Yeah, it's, it's. I want to dump this in the open source space in case somebody else needs it, but that's that's about it. Right. Um. So, like Jason Roberts' uh, framework and and feature switch, and, and I think Ntoggle is another one that all have pretty active development on them. Um. So at least they're they're out there. I, I do welcome the fact that there's a couple of commercial products that are emerging on the market, though, because I think that will that will help people that are really serious about this and kind of want the support and don't want to do a lot of the development for like the user interface of what toggles are on and off and how do I introduce this to users and things. Well, and integrating all this code into your system, like switching toggle libraries is not going to be fun. Oh, no, Absolutely. But isn't it interesting where we are these days in open source? A, totally normal reflex now to look at a GitHub project and look at the last contributions and how many contributors there are to sort of get a sense, is this healthy? And also this idea of, I'm not, don't have a problem. You know, one of the reasons you pay for software is the support. That, that That's oh. the value proposition there. Yeah. And, and especially with toggling frameworks, like this is one where, you want whoever's working on it to make sure they're getting it right. Cause yeah. if, if something doesn't work here and it does something you don't expect it to, some really bad things can happen. Um, I've run into that once or twice where there's a bug in a toggling framework and most of the time they were homegrown internal ones. And right. literally people spent a week trying to figure out, is it the application or is it the framework? And right. Yeah. Why we shouldn't write frameworks 101. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely I, I have this error that occurs in the framework code you know is it an error in the framework or is it an error in my application that's somehow breaking the framework I could, yeah round and round we go awesome yeah and we've, well, been, we've been there enough times now that we're all cynical about it exactly the the other thing that you kind of start running into is that as as your application gets broader and more complicated, um, toggling involves more pieces and more things that have to communicate with one another. So it usually can't just sit inside of um, my web tier or just inside of this one piece. It's basically like strewn the switches strewn throughout service layers and UI right. layers and maybe even processing layers in the background. Um, so now like turning on a toggle actually is more complex than than just going into your web UI and changing an app config or, um, you know, hitting a switch on on an application dashboard somewhere. For sure. And this also wa walks us back to something you mentioned at the beginning, which is this is technical debt. When do we clean this up? When does the toggle stuff get removed from a feature? Absolutely. And it it has to like for for teams doing um development especially in like an iterative cycle so scrum or, or a kanban type of model my personal recommendation is usually um keep it out so develop it during sprint one let's say and release it um get at least a sprint worth of feedback out there um and then basically the first sprint you see out there where the toggle is on all the time and basically you know it's stable um go back in and that following sprint and remove the technical debt 
Um, and just like in Kanban, where you set a work in process limit, basically have kind of a feature toggle limit out there too, so that your organization doesn't just keep creating them over and over and over again. Yeah. But, it, and I could see that, you know, for release toggles using the terminology you mentioned before, like those ones are going to hit a point where you, yeah, it's on all the time. Just get rid of that code. It's, it is a liability as opposed to AB testing where this may, or even ops toggles that these are permanent toggles. Siri, delete that code. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe more like Roslyn, delete that code. Nice. <laughs> Could probably get Cortana to do it at this point, too. That's true. But I guess one of the points is when we have these different categories of, of toggles is do you move them? Are they, are they isolated from each other so that you don't make the mistake of thinking, hey, this is something we need to remove. It's technical debt. Like that, that ops toggle for turning off the feature that cripples the website under high load. That's a good button. Like we should be happy with that button. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think you can toggles over time may migrate between some of these different spaces too. Mm-hmm. Um, especially from like release to ops. Um, or experiment to ops. I think that that could definitely be out there where it's like, well, we're done. We're done experimenting with this. But like you said, Richard, we're going to um, keep that on just in case, you know, we have to accidentally or shut it off in case of emergency later. Yeah, you almost want to take it out of the, the toggle library and embed it a different way. Yeah. Or at least change the name of it. Like a lot of times what I'll tell people to do is... Um, you know, people will, especially if they're going to start with app settings, the uh, the first recommendation is like at least prefix everything to begin with and do like toggle dot and then the toggle name. So at least you know what category of settings are your toggles. Um, but then as you get more advanced into another space, you could start kind of double prefixing where you do like toggle dot release dot name. Um, and then at that point, you can start being explicit about uh, migration. So there actually is a little bit of like technical debt work to convert a toggle from a release toggle to an ops toggle. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's just a string rename, then at least you are making it like a cognizant action of like, all right, this is going to stay around forever. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, this is an ops thing and don't mess with it unless you're talking to ops about it. Just making sure that people recognize something isn't technical debt. Yeah, exactly. Not that many people are excited to work on technical debt. Like, you know, wearing the project manager hat when we're, you know, going through a feature toggle thing, make sure I build in some time so that once this feature crosses the threshold and we do just want to make it permanent, I have that time for to make sure, just like I make sure you write your documentation and you finish your testing, you clean that up. Oh, absolutely. And and the other side of it actually is the testing, because we, we were talking about that at kind of a lower level. Um, it does get a little bit more complex to test toggles as you kind of move up that that classic test pyramid of like unit tests on the bottom, integration tests in the middle, and then like yes. UI or full scenario testings on top. Um, like building toggleable um, scenario testing or toggleable API testing can get significantly more complex. Um, the the way I, I typically tell teams to work on it is that if they're running, um, let's just say API level tests with feature toggles, um, that they at least mark them because a lot of them are still running as as a unit test kind of framework um, is add test categories that represent your toggles. Hmm. Um, and then you can basically change, say, OK, I'm going to start deploying this toggle in this category. Um, and because bigger frameworks like LaunchDarkly have the ability to um, access the API, you can kind of wrap your test runner framework to give you a list back of, oh, okay, this list of toggles on, so I'm going to run these additional test categories, and it basically runs the right set of of tests that correspond to what features you have on and off. Right. So, I mean, I could see that just from don't run tests on features you're not actually using. But the other side of this is, especially at the unit test level, if you're not specifically testing the existence of a feature toggle, do you care whether a chunk of code is toggled on or toggled off? That's a good point. And at least at the but, unit test level, right? I think as soon as you, you're thinking more integration and things like that, configuration matters a lot there. But we're just validating functionality. You know, I mean, one thing, now you can get fancy say, yeah, these unit tests failed, but this thing's toggled off for a reason. Let's keep going. Hmm. Right. 
Well, and, and that's where I think trying to front your toggling framework with an interface or something like that helps a lot in your unit test because then then you can basically write a test for both the on and the off state and right. run both of them at the same time. Well, I mean, hmm. so, I mean, there's the point. If it's toggled off, don't test it because it's probably going to fail. And I don't want to deal with those failures right now. It's off and save yourself oh, right. some time. But the, the, I kind of also like just run all the tests that we acknowledge. There's code in here we know is broken. It's toggled off. You know, keep going. I just, from a test manager's perspective, you've really got to think about how you document that, how you understand it. Yeah. Yeah. But I like it. You know, I'm excited about it. This is all more encouragements around this continuous delivery automated testing models that we we want to be able to get there i i really like this idea when you're using feature toggles of having an integrate first mentality code's not in use but it's already integrated in the system so at least you're yeah. getting those overall validations of this compiles as opposed to that six week old branch that you're hoping is going to integrate when the time comes it's and it's interesting how you can actually test some of these things in production ahead of time before even releasing them like yeah. most most people haven't heard the story that um, Facebook chat actually was running in production for four and a half months, I think, wow. Um, wow. prior to the first user using it. And we were all the beta testers indirectly. So what they do is they send a chunk of JavaScript down to your Facebook client when you're using it, and it would send fake messages back into the Facebook chat system huh. so that they could basically load test it in production so that when day one actually happened, they knew that Facebook chat would be able to deal with the number of users working it. See, I love right. stories like that. That's just a total engineer's wet dream right there. That's great. Yeah. yeah it's, it's more testing in production in a way that you know how much more resource to provision. And yet it doesn't uh, impact the user's experience. Well, or, not, or at least not enough that they notice. Not that they notice, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Although I'm sure the guy on the 288 modem probably <laughs> noticed all the extra messages going out. <laughs> yeah. As long as he's not using Fiddler and trying to poke around in there. <laughs> well, when you, when you do, if, I don't know if you've ever snapped on to the Facebook stream through something like Fiddler. It's an intense amount of data. That is some of the craziest JavaScript you've ever seen in your life. And it's talking back to the server all the time. Hmm. Yeah, there's there's a couple of apps. LinkedIn is is another one that's really chatty in the background. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, if you've got a phone and you have oh, the Facebook website open, not the app, and it's not up and it's not activated if it's really asleep or if it's doing all that background stuff. That's, that's interesting because some applications are good about that. Um, and some web browsers are actually good at saying this tab is inactive. So it shuts down all those connections for it. Yeah. Um, but that's why like the Chrome suspend feature came out because of, certain browsers and applications not doing that. And it basically consumed your entire connection pool. Yeah. I, th I think based on my empirical evidence that it does not do anything in the background because you really do have to refresh the page when you go to it for the, you, know, you haven't been there in a while. In At order least to on the phone, content. right? I, you know, Chrome on your desktop machine Different. Good Lord, man. It's turning into the new Outlook. 150 threads doing various <laughs> Chrome things all the time. There's, <laughs> a, there's one like, for me. None of them are for you. <laughs> there's just like 10 feet of pop-ups just waiting for a moment. It's like, hey, by the way, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing that always amazes me is how many threads your Chrome extensions actually consume. It's like, oh, look, there's like 10 extra processes and 100 extra threads that are all being consumed by like, Chrome extensions. And every time I open a new window, it doubles all of those. Yeah. Like, great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got a few Chrome win windows open right now. Just looking at the summaries, so I got 1,663 threads in use of our 91 processes. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the CPU is basically asleep, right? Like, these guys are just prepared for war at any given moment. <laughs> yeah. When I first made the old Outlook joke that gets quoted routinely now about 65 threads, none of them are for you. I got an email from some Outlook 
product guys going, <laughs> will you shut up <laughs> you know we just start those threads in case we need them right they don't consume anything when they're not in use yeah they're like i know i'm trying to use them and they won't consume anything <laughs> yeah it's really interesting when when applications start dynamically provisioning stuff ahead of when you think they're going to so dan what's next on your plate well, um, the the job that you mentioned in the beginning of the show, I actually started just this week. So uh, oh, cool. I have a lot to learn. And that's probably going to consume a lot of my next couple of months. I have a few speaking engagements throughout the Midwest over the next uh, six, seven weeks. And uh, my wife is actually due with kid number three in four weeks. Whoa, so. congrats. Woohoo. Thank you. And thanks for having more children. You know, smart people need to have more babies because the dumb ones are having shed loads. Yeah. Actually, shed loads. Yeah. (laughs) I thought that's what you said. This this is actually kid number three, but um, it's going to be, it's actually not that much work aside from the fear of being outnumbered. So, (laughs) yeah. Well, Dan, thanks very much for spending this hour with us. It's been great. Great. Thanks, guys. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a talk.